Do you remember when you were a kid and you would try to run up the escalator the wrong way? If you stood still, you'd move backwards. Well, your role as a resilience professional may not be all that different. Hello everyone and welcome to the Resilient Journey podcast sponsored by ClearRisk. I'm your host Mark Hoffman and today we continue our series aimed at helping resilience professionals speak up about the value we bring to the table. My guest today is the Business Continuity and Crisis Management Manager for Liberty Mutual Insurance. She's a frequent conference speaker, blogger, has her own website dedicated to disaster resilience, and is one of the co-founders of the Resilience Think Tank. It's none other than Ashley Guzman. In this episode, I talk with Ashley about adding value and, just like the escalator, why staying static is the surest way to lose relevance. We'll get right into it right after we hear from my good friends at ClearRisk. Navigating changes in the risk landscape can be daunting without access to the right tools. ClearRisk's centralized risk management solution streamlines the process of data collection and analysis helping customers make impactful decisions and focus on big picture initiatives. ClearRisk provides a highly configurable, easy to use solution that gives our customers the confidence to inform decision-making and proactively optimize risk in their organizations. Effective risk management begins with data you can trust. Learn more at clearrisk.com. Ashley, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Let me just say thank you too for the opportunity to speak with you today and congratulations on your BCI Consultant of the Year Award. Um, I'm really excited to be working with Resilience Think Tank and that we just launched and really honored to be a member. Before we get into this too far, tell the listeners a little bit about how you got into business continuity, the world of resilience and all of this. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I have a an interesting journey, I think, because I didn't start out in business continuity originally. I got into this work after 9-11. Um, I applied for a job with the American Red Cross down in New York. I'm from Massachusetts and had only ever been to New York City twice before and um, you know, just really wanted to give back and help in some way because in the Boston area, there are actually a lot of people at that time who were commuting down to New York. Um, so I was fortunate that I didn't know anyone directly, but definitely knew a lot of people that were impacted by the event. And so I found myself a month after interviewing, living in New York and working on their uh, mental health intake unit. And so we processed over about a thousand cases of individuals who either lived south of Canal Street, um, were family members of decedents or first responders. So it was a very intense, um, but rewarding experience. And after that, I think I just got the disaster bug and really wanted to keep working in the field. And at that time I was able to get a position that I thought was a two-year contract position with the Department of Mental Health in Massachusetts, um, working with the Commonwealth. And so I did that, ended up doing that for about eight years and eventually progressed to the Director of Emergency Services, working on a variety of um, planning and um, and you know direct service with SAMHSA, responding to events. And so I really got into the planning side and that really led me um, during that time to really investigate um, how I could take that work to the new, the next level from working on COOP continuity of operations with the government. And then I 
ended up getting certified through DRI and business continuity and eventually um, moved to Liberty Mutual Insurance, where I've been for now, it's going to be close to 10 years coming up next year um, in their business continuity group. So that's really um, kind of the, the short long <laughs> of how I got into it, just really enjoy the work. Um, so today, it really is a mixture of business continuity planning for me. And now I'm a program owner for their crisis management uh, work as well. See, there's something I didn't know about you. I, I didn't know about the 9-11 connection. And, you know, a phrase that kind of gets thrown around a lot is thank you for your service. But really, truly, thank you for what you did there. I mean, I, I didn't know that. That's that's very interesting. Thanks, Mark. I'm, I'm pretty humble about it, only because I call myself a, a second string player. And I think you get the football analogy right. uh, for American football. And, you know, I came in really as relief for the group that had been there really from ground zero from day one. Um, so I came in about 14 months or so later um, and then stayed for about a year um, working on the project. So, um, you know, I worked with some really great people. It's very fortunate. Now, in our previous episode, I interviewed James Green, who, like you, is a co-founder of the Resilience Think Tank. And you and another member of our think tank, Andreas Bryant, just wrote a really good two-part article for PreparedX about business continuity and operational resilience. Now, in that article, you talk about how the role of the business continuity practitioner might be evolving. What did you mean by that? So Andreas Bryant and I, um, in that article, really speak to the value of the business continuity practitioner and how operational resilience really provides us with a window of opportunity here. The goal of operational resilience, as I'm understanding it, is really to document the ability to continue to provide critical services when an outage occurs. So this model is focused on key aspects of the financial services industry like banking, um, and it really is what's developed to ensure that customers continue to receive vital services during times of crisis. To say it another way, it really ensures that the service continuum is mapped by the business from the beginning to the end. Um, what I really like in terms of the intersection with business continuity is that it often takes a function-focused approach. However, a foundational aspect of business impact analysis, interviews, and plans that I've built is to capture the interdependencies, both from an upstream and downstream uh, for that function, uh, so that there's really an understanding of what happens when there is an interruption. And I see operational resilience as taking this approach a level up um, to really align all of the functions and dependencies in a service-oriented view. So in a way, the data should already be there that business continuity is collected in most organizations if they take this approach. So it, it may require business continuity and risk managers to dig deeper, however, to ensure that the right level of granularity is apparent when they map those services, but I really see that it's closely aligned with what continuity practitioners are already trying to achieve. It really just puts a slightly different lens or spin on it. Identifying risk tolerances and certifying continuation of services makes so much sense to me. And I can really see why regulatory and supervisory authorities are recommending this approach. And it really aligns with what I've heard from my colleagues in the business during our COVID response. They articulated that their plans describe how they will return to work, but really noted that the execution of key tasks often relies on other functions teams 
to execute their portion of the work. So this interdependent excuse me, this interdependency really gets at what we try to map in our function-specific plans. And to use uh, Emeril Lagasse's phrase, this really kicks it up a notch, right, and taking it to an operational resilience approach, which I really believe is long overdue. From what I see, this aspect of the work is being led by risk management, but benefits from business continuity being at the table. So the article that Andreas and I have coming out shortly with Preparedex really speaks more in depth to this. So I hope your listeners will keep an eye out for it. Yeah, you make me want to say BAM now, right? I mean, you got a, <laughs> exactly. you got a BIA, so BAM, you, you throw that in there. So it's not something that a, um, a business continuity practitioner should be afraid of because it's building on, on what we're already doing anyhow. I completely agree. You talked about COVID in in your answer there. In your opinion, how has COVID affected our industry? Yeah, I mean, I think it's maybe it's woken it up or shaken it up a little bit to go back to the the Emeril Lagasse, um, you know, term in terms of you know, it's kind of stirring the pot. Um, what I've really seen is two things. You know, one it's enabled a great deal of practitioners to really come to the forefront and show everyone what they've got, right? Um, companies seem to have really woken up and realized realized how important the work is um, and how much they can benefit from having a good business continuity program you know, embedded within the business. Um, and I think that's a great opportunity. I, you know, I really think, and I just spoke about it, but I think we have you know, a year or a couple of years at most to really um, take this opportunity in across organizations, across our communities, and really embed business continuity and resilience um, as a foundation. And it is in some places, um, but I think for other organizations, it's been more of a check the box, you know, it's compliance, we've got to do it. And now they're really saying, well, hey, this this methodology, this stuff really helps prepare us um, when crisis has happened. So that's really exciting for me. Um, you know, I think the, the other big lesson from COVID is as much as people really want a recipe book to deal with every single type of event, many of us in my own organization and Liberty Mutual, you know, have a pandemic plan, but I can say that this response well outpaced anything that we had in our plan. So I think that's just something for practitioners to keep in mind. And as we're working with our business partners, it's really helping them to understand that it's not always a one, two, three, you know, four, check the box, but that we actually um, need to think outside of it and always be prepared for what we're not thinking about. And I'm a believer in we simply can't plan for everything. So we need to be flexible. I think that flexibility makes some of our colleagues a little uncomfortable. And I'm going to kind of leverage that into this next question now. So, you know, we have some things that we're used to doing as a resilience practitioner, business impact analysis, continuity plans, reports, playbooks, things like that. But sometimes these plans and these documents have kind of struggled to be as relevant as we'd like them to be. Do you think that that's partially to blame for some programs struggling to demonstrate value? And what do you think we can do with BIAs and things like that to make them have a little bit more value? No, I mean, you hit on a 
some really good questions about the work. And historically, that business impact analysis or BIA is really a foundational pillar of a successful continuity program, along with impact risk assessments, plan development, exercising, and, and governance. And these are all great things, and, and they're good foundations. But the challenge that I've experienced in the past is that the work is very heavily jargon intensive and often fails to resonate with our business partners. So, you know, I found that I've spent sometimes as much time explaining the business continuity jargon and, and the process as much as getting the information and helping to educate them. Um, so really what I see is it's, it's that's failed to resonate sometimes with them. And it's not that they don't agree that preparing for crises and business interruptions isn't important. It's just that the way that we've gone about it has not been, I think, as transparent as it could be. And so one example that I see is with the BIA itself. With my experience, the, pro the process really relies heavily on educating our business partners, as I said, about the processes and the concepts. And usually these things are pretty foreign to them, right? They don't deal with it every day. They have their own daily jobs and things that they're thinking about. Um, but the BIA is really good because if done right, by the end, you've trained your subject matters in that process. The downside that I've seen is that the business today is changing so rapidly and so often that those subject matter experts that you spent so much time training up may not be there the next year or the next go around. And so I find that we're continually retraining business partners on what we do. And to me, this really decreases the program's overall effectiveness. What I'm seeing evolve is really that we've had a very heavily compliance dependent model focused more on achieving steps rather than understanding and embedding that into the work. And so I really see this as we focused on the how of business continuity rather than the why. And my goal really has been over the past few years to demystify business continuity so that it really it will enable us to have increased partnership across business units. And one of the reasons that I'm so interested in aligning this with operational resilience is because for our business partners, that really seems to resonate with them. When I say operational resilience, they understand what that is immediately. And I don't have to spend a ton of time really explaining it to them. And it really creates, I think, a better framework from which to build. So I really see that as a plus and, and so really ask our, our colleagues out there to think about it from that perspective. Um, you know, I really think the BIAs, the plans and compliance, they are important, but I'm really interested in how we can plus that or how we can adjust that and adjust our framework so that we do have that built-in resonance with the business and really foster our disaster preparedness and resilience. And so, you know, I think there are some other ways and other techniques that we can think about utilizing to make this happen. Now, do you think there are certain things that we should specifically not be doing when it comes to BIAs and plans? Yeah, um, I'm really open to varying methodologies and approaches. You know, I think, and I think you're aware with the work that you've done that, you know, business continuity can be done a little bit differently, right? In every company and in every industry, depending on what their needs are. Um, so, you know, I, I stay away a little bit from saying there are absolutes, but from a disaster recovery standpoint, you know, you might rely on runbooks, right? Documented procedures, et cetera, to successfully execute that recovery. But I'm also cognizant that a lot of companies are still are small or their operations are small. And often for many of us, 
you know, business continuity is a one person shop, right? And that person is expected to lead the disaster recovery crisis, vendor management, along with business continuity all in one. And so I really recognize that I'm fortunate to work with a larger team, though I still call it small but mighty in relation to our output. But I want to make sure that I answer your your question too. Um, Moving forward, I really encourage all practitioners to orient their programs towards a resilience approach. And not just because of the buzzword, right, in the industry today, but really my belief is that a resilience approach makes sense for our work today and going forward for what we're really trying to achieve. It aligns you know, the trend of really needing to be more nimble and agile that I've spoken of, whether it's for emergency or crisis response, recovering from an event or program administration. So I'd say the practitioners will really need to analyze our own programs and continue to grow along with the needs of the business. And that really is the key linchpin for me. Um, I think staying static is the surest way to lose our relevance over time as we're talking about business continuity value. And we really need to continue to determine if the way we are doing the work, if that really is building resilient programs, does it make sense, right? What we're doing today, does it best support the business needs? And if it doesn't, we really need to think about adjusting that. Um, You know, I know if I was doing this work 10 years from now in the same way, I'd really get bored. (laughs) And I don't think it'd be relevant to the business at all for the way that I'm seeing them really churn and grow and develop. And I know we've talked a number of times about this too offline about how, and you put it in your article too, it's, this is not a one size fits all. Like you don't do the same thing in an enterprise organization that you would do in a company of 40 to 50 people. So uh, you need to be nimble. You need to be thinking about uh, the culture of the organization, which frankly is one of the foundational items of building a good program anyhow. So that's good. Another thing you and I have talked about a lot is how we can use different tools like dashboards or shorter and more relevant plans. So walk me through the use of dashboards, either in BIAs or in business continuity plans, and maybe some ideas of how we could use them effectively. I think that some people have had a really hard time conceptualizing a world without plans. (laughs) All along, I've really never dropped my belief in the importance of planning and preparedness. My thought really has been that the data we put in our plans today is more important than the plan format. So I hope that helps you and and listeners. If I could try to say it another way, I think our business partners, to really help them to be successful in executing, we need to present the information in a way that's the most helpful for them. Um, so that they're able to respond, they're able to recover their functions, and then finally get to business resumption. To me, that's more important than the way that the information is arranged, say, in that, that plan document. I think along with that, my recent experience is that our business partners, especially managers, are getting their today their data today in a variety of visual formats, mainly, right? And most continuity plans that I've come across are still heavily text-based. This doesn't resonate very well with them. My team at Liberty began to provide BI reports a few years back in a dashboard, you know, PowerPoint visual format several years ago, and it's been a big hit. In fact, we've had feedback um, during COVID from our response that people were pulling out their BIA reports as a reference for response 
rather than pulling their plans. And we really had to step back and I've really taken a look at this. So this is just one example that led to my thinking on why dashboards provide more value today than a plan record or a Word document or an Excel document. Um, but really you can, you can make it be anything that you want to. But again, I'm really seeing that rise with a visual format working very well in the business. And that's why we really need to thinking, keep thinking about what makes sense to them instead of just continuing with a model that isn't resonating. And I'm always advocating, and I think you do as well, for really knowing your audience in any situation, right? As you talked about, you need to understand the culture and you need to understand the size of the company or the business that you're working with. So I really want to make sure that we are providing that value with business continuity. And for me, it's just foolish right now to continue to provide a format or a tool that's out of alignment and outmoded in relation to how business leaders and our partners are getting their data today for decision-making. So the dashboard or visual report seems to me to be a way to fix that for business continuity. So if your listeners, if they really want to learn more, um, you know, they can definitely encourage them to go to my disasterempire.com blog. And there's one I wrote about, um, they'll talk about this in more detail than I know we have time today. It's called Why Dashboards Are Better Than BCPs. You talk in your article too about how our work connects the dots across departments. You talked about dependencies and things like that. And there's a lot here. Connecting the dots speaks to effectively utilizing data gathered in the BIA or in risk assessments. And being that conduit leads me to think about building relationships with business partners. What are you suggesting our colleagues do in order to build this type of model? And talk about how that adds value. Sure. You know, in the article that Andreas and I wrote, we discussed that one of the values is to map critical services across departments or functions, as I mentioned earlier. It's important from a continuity standpoint, really, to understand what the downstream and upstream dependencies are along a service continuum. So, for example, a simple um, way that I could describe this is in a banking context could be you know, what is entailed in the process from when a customer wants to withdraw money or deposit a check. So by understanding all the individual processes and teams involved that enable that service, you really begin to map out the tolerances that you have for interruptions in that service. You can identify potential gaps, you know, especially when you have to layer in various crisis contingencies. And so to get a, as robust um, a perspective as possible, you would need not only to map out all of the key functions involved in that and have them weigh in, but you also want to have supporting departments like risk, like IT and business continuity to really help view that service delivery continuum from all of those aspects. And so I think this really requires that not only the business partners look to develop a 180 view from beginning to end, but really engage service partners to build a 360 view. And all of this really is to prepare and hopefully right limit the damage and the extent of damage when an interruption occurs, because the business then would have thought through most failure points and really gains knowledge of what downtime could be acceptable or unavoidable. You know, I also like exercising and testing against plausible and worst case scenarios. And I see this trending more and as something I'm definitely agreeing with. And as I mentioned earlier, many people really want that recipe book of how to bake, you know, that cake or respond to every event. And this is just is implausible. And we're seeing that from our COVID experience. 
Instead, again, using a football analogy, I recommend that organizations build a, a flexible playbook approach so that they're testing against a variety of evolving scenarios. So that keeps people prepared, but also ready for the unexpected like COVID has turned out to be. And I know right now working with Liberty, we're definitely taking that approach. Um, we're doing some upcoming exercises for our home office. And instead of just doing one annual exercise like we used to do in the past, we're doing it quarterly. And you know, in a 90-minute session, we're doing quick quick hits with two or three scenarios to walk through of things that we think are, are plausible um, or things that we've never really experienced before and want to test out together. I think we're running a little short on time, but I know uh, I keep referencing this article, but it's such a good one. You talk about future-proofing our careers. So if someone who's maybe struggled with articulating value and they want to protect their career, they want to future-proof their career, what advice would you give? Yeah, I think a key for me and just my orientation is continuous learning. So really always engaging and learning, being curious, learning more about trends, deciding if they you think they work or if they don't. Um, I think that's very important. I think as practitioners, we also need to look and accept opportunities that will challenge us to grow in new ways. I think that's very important as well. Try to remain humble. You know, I think the moment that you start thinking that you know everything, um, I think you have to watch out for that because in my experience, I'm always learning new things. That's part of what makes this work fun for me as well um, and working with people, right? And to learn from them additionally. I think another thing is not to be afraid to network, not to be afraid to reach out, out to others and ask for help. You know, for example, I'm learning so much and working with the members, the other members of the Resilience Think Tank, you know, many of them who I didn't know or only admired, right, from afar. So it's really been great to work with like-minded people and also to be challenge each other a little bit, right, and, and to help each other to grow additionally. Um, just be open to new ideas and approaches to doing things. You know, that's one of the biggest blockers. And I think I've talked about that throughout our chat today. Um, you know, just keep trying to grow your program. That's one of the key things is you didn't want to keep the foundation intact, but really look at our business partners and try to keep alignment as the business is growing, trying to continually think about how you can help them to be better prepared and resilient. I love that. Uh, and I'll get you out of here on this. Uh, you mentioned your blog, disasterempire.com. People want to reach out and connect with Ashley Guzman. How do they do that? Yeah, um, I really encourage people to uh, connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, so that's, you can look for Ashley Guzman. I think I'm the only one there. So <laughs> that's a great way to do it. Um, you can also go to disasterempire.com and follow my blogs as well. Um, you know, I really love to continue dialogues with people as well. Um, so always ready to, to help and, and reach out. And I really want to thank you for the opportunity to, to talk both with you uh, more and your listeners today. I'm really grateful for the dialogue and sharing my ideas. So my hope is that they provide some value to others and hopefully spark some healthy debate too. And I think they will. And I appreciate uh, your insights. I, and I, as I said at the top, it's extremely valuable having you on the Resilient Journey podcast. And uh, I just thank you so much for doing it. Thank you, Mark. I'd like to extend a big thanks to Ashley Guzman for being my guest today in episode six of the Resilient Journey. A reminder that you can connect with Ashley, the Resilience Think Tank, 
and thedisasterempire.com by clicking the links in the show notes below. And as always, a huge thanks to my friends over at ClearRisk for sponsoring the podcast. We're going to continue our series in Episode 7 by speaking with confidence coach Susan Graves. Susan will explain how growing our confidence at work can help us be more productive and how documenting our own successes can help us grow more confident and articulate our value. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.